This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Man Alive by G. K. Chesterton Section 4, Part 1 The Enigmas of Innocent Smith Chapter 2 The Language of an Optimist Part 2 she has to keep things pretty tight as is only natural said moon glancing round the rather dwarfish room with its wedge of slanted ceiling like the conical hood of a dwarf rather a small box for you said the waggish mr gould splendid room though answered mr smith enthusiastically with his head inside his gladstone bag i love these pointed sort of rooms like gothic by the way he cried out, pointing in a quite startling way. Where does that door lead to? To certain death, I should say, answered Michael Moon, staring up at a dust-stained and disused trap-door in the sloping roof of the attic. I don't think there's a loft there, and I don't know what else it could lead to. Long before he had finished his sentence, the man with the strong green legs had leapt at the door in the ceiling, swung himself somehow on to the ledge beneath it, wrenched it open after a struggle, and clambered through it. For a moment they saw the two symbolic legs standing like a truncated statue, then they vanished. Through the hole thus burst in the roof appeared the empty and lucid sky of the evening, with one great many-colored cloud sailing across it like a whole country upside down. "'Hello, you fellows!' came the far cry of Innocent Smith apparently from some remote pinnacle. Come up here and bring some of my things to eat and drink. It's just the spot for a picnic. With a sudden impulse, Michael snatched two of the small bottles of wine, one in each solid fist, and Arthur Inglewood, as if mesmerized, groped for a biscuit tin and a big jar of ginger. The enormous hand of Innocent Smith, appearing through the aperture like a giant's in a fairy tale, received these tributes and bore them off to the eyrie. Then they both hoisted themselves out of the window. They were both athletic and even gymnastic. Inglewood, through his concern for hygiene, and Moon, through his concern for sport, which was not quite so idle and inactive as that of the average sportsman. Also they both had a light-headed burst of celestial sensation when the door was burst in the roof as if a door had been burst in the sky and they could climb out onto the very roof of the universe. They were both men who had long been unconsciously imprisoned in the commonplace, though one took it in comically and the other seriously. They were both men, nevertheless, in whom sentiment had never died. But Mr. Moses Gould had an equal contempt for their suicidal athletics and their subconscious transcendentalism, and he stood and laughed at the thing with the shameless rationality of another race. When the singular smith astride of a chimney-pot learnt that Gould was not following his infantile officiousness and good-nature, forced him to dive back into the attic to comfort or persuade, and Inglewood and Moon were left alone on the long grey-green ridge of the slate roof, with their feet against gutters and their backs against chimney-pots, looking agnostically at each other. Their first feeling was that they had come out into eternity, 
and that eternity was very like topsy-turvydom. One definition occurred to both of them, that he had come out into the light of that lucid and radiant ignorance in which all beliefs had begun. The sky above them was full of mythology. Heaven seemed deep enough to hold all the gods. The round of the ether turned from green to yellow gradually, like a great unripe fruit. All round the sunken sun it was like a lemon. Round all the east it was a sort of golden green, more suggestive of a green gauge. But the whole had still the emptiness of daylight, and none of the secrecy of dusk. Tumbled here and there across his gold and pale green were shards and shattered masses of inky purple cloud, which seemed falling toward the earth in every kind of colossal perspective. One of them really had the character of some many-mitred, many-bearded, many-winged Assyrian image, huge head downwards, hurled out of heaven, a sort of false Jehovah, who was perhaps Satan. All the other clouds had preposterous pinnacled shapes, as if the gods' palaces had been flung after him. And yet, while the empty heaven was full of silent catastrophe, the height of human buildings above which they sat held here and there a tiny trivial noise that was the exact antithesis, and they heard some six streets below a newsboy calling and a bell beating to chapel. They could also hear talk out of the garden below, and realize that the irrepressible Smith must have followed Ghoul downstairs, for his eager and pleading accents could be heard, followed by the half-humorous protests of Miss Duke and the full and very youthful laughter of Rosamond Hunt. The air had that cold kindness that comes after a storm. Michael Moon drank it in with as serious a relish as he had drunk the little bottle of cheap claret, which he had emptied almost at a draught. Inglewood went on eating ginger very slowly and with a solemnity unfathomable as the sky above him. There was still stir in the freshness of the atmosphere to make them almost fancy they could smell the garden soil and the last roses of autumn. Suddenly there came from the darkening room a silvery ping and pong which told them that Rosamond had brought out the long-neglected mandolin. After the first few notes there was more of the distant bell-like laughter. Englewood said Michael Moon, have you ever heard that I am a blackguard? I haven't heard it, and I don't believe it, answered Englewood, after an odd pause. But I have heard you were what they call rather wild. If you have heard that I am wild, you can contradict the rumor, said Moon, with an extraordinary calm. I am tame. I am quite tame. I am about the tamest beast that crawls. I drink too much of the same kind of whiskey at the same time every night. I even drink about the same amount too much. I go to the same number of public houses. I meet the same darned women with mauve faces. I hear the same number of dirty stories, generally the same dirty stories. You may assure my friends, Inglewood, that you see before you a person whom civilization has thoroughly tamed. Arthur Inglewood was staring with feelings that made him nearly fall off the roof, for indeed the Irishman's face, always sinister, was now almost demoniacal. Christ, confound it, cried out Moon, suddenly clutching the empty claret bottle. This is about the thinnest and filthiest wine I ever uncorked, and it's the only drink I have really enjoyed for nine years. 
I was never wild till ten minutes ago. And he sent the bottle whizzing, a wheel of glass, far away beyond the garden, into the road, where in the profound evening silence they could even hear it break and part upon the stones. Moon, said Arthur Inglewood rather huskily, you mustn't be so bitter about it. Everyone has to take the world as he finds it. Of course, one often finds it a bit dull. That fellow doesn't, said Michael decisively. I mean, that fellow Smith. I have a sort of fancy there's some method in his madness. It looks as if he could turn into a sort of wonderland at any minute by taking one step out on the plain road. Who would have thought of that trap door? Who would have thought that this cursed colonial claret could taste quite nice among the chimney-pots? Perhaps that's the real key of fairyland. Perhaps Nosy Gould's beastly little empire cigarettes ought only to be smoked on stilts, or something of that sort. Perhaps Mrs. Duke's cold leg of mutton would seem quite appetizing at the top of a tree. Perhaps even my damned dirty monotonous drizzle of old Bill whiskey. Don't be so rough on yourself, said Inglewood, in serious distress. The dullness isn't your fault, or the whiskey's. Fellows who don't, fellows like me, I mean, have just that same feeling that it's all rather flat and a failure. But the world's made like that. It's all survival. Some people are made to get on, like Warner, and some people are made to stick quiet, like me. You can't help your temperament. I know you're much cleverer than I am, but you can't help having all those loose ways of a poor literary chap. And I can't help having all the doubts and helplessness of a small scientific chap any more than a fish can help floating, or a fern can help curling up. Humanity, as Warner said so well in that lecture, really consists of quite different tribes of animals, all disguised as men. In the dim garden below the buzz of talk was suddenly broken by Miss Hunt's musical instrument banging with the abruptness of artillery into a vulgar but spirited tune. Rosamond's voice came up rich and strong in the words of some fatuous, fashionable black song. Blacks sing a song on the old plantation, sing it as we sang it in the days long gone by. Inglewood's brown eyes softened and saddened still more as he continued his monologue of resignation to such a rollicking and romantic tune. But the blue eyes of Michael Moon brightened and hardened with a light that Inglewood could not understand. Many centuries and many villages and valleys would have been happier if Inglewood or Inglewood's countrymen had ever understood that light, or guessed at the first blink that it was the battle-star of Ireland. "'Nothing can ever alter it. It's in the wheels of the universe,' went on Inglewood, in a low voice. "'Some men are weak and some strong, and the only thing we can do is to know that we are weak.' I have been in love lots of times, but I could not do anything, for I remembered my own fickleness. I have formed opinions, but I haven't the cheek to push them, because I've so often changed them. That's the upshot, old fellow. We can't trust ourselves, and we can't help it. Michael had risen to his feet, and stood poised in a perilous position at the end of the roof, like some dark statue hung above the gable. Behind him huge clouds of an almost impossible purple turned slowly topsy-turvy in the silent anarchy of heaven. Their gyration made the dark figure seem yet dizzier. 
Let us, he said, and was suddenly silent. Let us what? asked Arthur Inglewood, rising equally quick, though somewhat more cautiously, for his friend seemed to find some difficulty in speech. Let us go and do some of those things we can't do, said Michael. At the same moment there burst out of the trap-door below them the cockatoo hair and flushed face of Innocent Smith, calling to them that they must come down as the concert was in full swing, and Mr. Moses Gould was about to recite Young Lochinvar. As they dropped into Innocent's attic they nearly tumbled over its entertaining impedimentia again. Inglewood, staring at the littered floor, thought instinctively of the littered floor of a nursery. He was therefore the more moved and even shocked when his eye fell on a large, well-polished American revolver. "'Hello!' he cried, stepping back from the steely glitter, as men step back from a serpent. "'Are you afraid of burglars, or when and why do you deal death out of that machine-gun?' "'Oh, that,' said Smith, throwing his single glance, "'I deal life out of that,' and he went bounding down the stairs. End of chapter 2